We've read the text, so let's think about tests. Some of you just came through a week of tests. Some of you college students finished your uh, midterms before Christmas break. Many of us don't want to think about tests today. Let's not think about the tests that we take. Let's think about some of the other testing that goes on in our world. Uh, How about those commercials, those tire commercials, where they show tires spinning on some sort of machine? And, and they're testing them for 50,000 miles or 70,000 miles or 100,000 miles. And you've got these people in white lab coats with clipboards. I wonder if that's really the way it is. Or is that just made for TV? Could I get a job like that? Just watch tires spin all day. Uh, how about engine? Now, the, uh, the, the tire spinning is kind of cool. But then when they show you one of those engines and it's an oil commercial... Uh, and, and they're showing how long this oil is going to last and keep your engine running. they got like the cutaway of the engine or something. That's, that's kind of cool, a little bit more going on there. And how do they figure out how many miles a running shoe is good for? I've heard that they actually have machines that somehow replicate people running, some sort of robotic foot that you know, gets the pressure down and, and they, they test out shoes that way. Uh, that's a better way to test running shoes than actually using them, right? Using them. Well, who wants to go through all that? They say you're supposed to change running shoes every 500 miles. Some people calculate how many miles they run. Others of you are like, if you see me running, there must be a bear. You should run too, right? Well, we're going to notice in the book of First John a number of tests about whether or not we are genuine Christians. You can go through these various tests for tires and oil and vacuum cleaners and a myriad of appliances and, yes, running shoes. And those things make a difference in the here and now. But John is making us think beyond the here and now to the hereafter. And he wants us to ponder whether or not we are genuine Christians. And he's going to ask some probing questions. If you're honest as you're reading the book of 1 John, it's a very uncomfortable book because John says some things that leave very little gray area. He talks about light and dark. He talks about obedience and sin. He talks about love and hate. And quite honestly, as you read these verses, you get the sense that you're either on one side or the other, and you can, um, I think, be appropriately nervous about which side you're on, because he lays the terms out so starkly. What I want us to do this morning is, 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 is go through the first of these tests with John. And what I'm happy to say is that as he gives us this test... He recognizes the situation that we're in. So, so what do they do when they talk about tires? Yeah, tires in a lab are going to go these many miles, but if you live in Pennsylvania and the potholes around here, the reality is you're probably not going to get 100,000 miles, right? There's reality. Yeah, you're supposed to obey, John's going to say, but he's going to also bring up the reality, which doesn't negate the test. We have two points this morning. There's plan A, that's point number one. Plan A, Christian, you defend God's commands. And the second point is plan A, Jesus defends you. Some of you are concerned I just misspoke because point one and two are both plan A. 
and that's intentional. God has a plan A. And that plan A is for you to, Christian, defend his commands. I'm going to read verse 1 and then skip to verse 3 because half of verse 1 and all of verse 2 are almost a parenthesis in his thought. You notice that he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And let's go to verse 3. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, you see the repetition there about keeping his commandments, keeping his word. In him truly love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. John is telling us that Christians will keep or guard or defend Jesus' commands. We will treasure the commands of Jesus. And he's telling us these things because he doesn't want us to sin. This is not surprising if we consider what we looked at last week. Look at John 1.5. This is a message we've heard and we proclaim to you, God is light and in him is no darkness. In God there is no sin. And so here is the test. Are we guarding, treasuring, keeping Jesus' commandments? Because the message is that God is light. And if we are with God, we will be coming to that light. Consider these words from uh, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have been rescued from your sin, not simply rescued from hell. Hell is the punishment for sin, and obviously rescue from hell is fantastic, but rescue from sin is actually even better, and it's even more the focus of why Jesus came. Rescue from sin so we could do good works. Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's interesting because we feel like our time period in 21st century America is bad, but Paul is saying that 1st century Middle East was the present evil age as well, and Jesus came to deliver us from that. James 1, you see that faith was active along with Abraham's works, and his faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We are going to read later on much in the book of John about faith and how key faith is. And those of us who are familiar with the New Testament know that faith, again and again and again, is the way that we come to be in relationship with God. Faith alone was the battle cry of the Reformation, and rightfully so, because none of us are saved by our own obedience. But sometimes we take grace and we twist it into something that God never intended it to be, and that is a cheap grace that says, 
since I'm forgiven, I can live however I want because there is an endless reservoir of forgiveness available. John says, no, 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 that's not the right attitude. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. God is wanting to put distance between us and the sins we commit, but God is also wanting to put distance between us and the sins we are tempted to commit. He wants to deliver us from this present evil age. And so when we come to verse 3, he says, this is how you know that you know him. I love how simply one Bible commentary put it. Assurance of salvation is possible. Sometimes we can muddy the waters. You can know that you know God. You don't have to wonder. You can know that you know God if you keep his commandments, if you guard his commandments, if you defend his commandments, if you treasure them. The word there, keep, is... Not simply the idea of I've done my duty, but it is guarding a sacred trust. It is building a watchtower. It is building a, a, um, a, a fortress or, or a, um, uh, I lost the word, ammunition depot, right? It, it, it's, it's a place where you protect the stuff that's really important. It is an action, but it comes with an attitude. And Paul is writing in an era where, you know, you you remember from study in school, there's the Greek gods and there's the Roman gods and there's kind of this state official religion and, and the Caesar is at the top of that. But that religion left many people in that time period empty. They really didn't just want to kind of go along with the crowd in that way. And so there were other religions that were part of the landscape. They were called mystery religions. It was kind of a big umbrella term for what we today would call kind of spirituality. The idea that we're going to, um, in our day, uh, not real big on organized religion, whether it's uh, Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but, but spirituality is important. And you've got very strange schools and ideas of spirituality today, just like you had back then. And one of the strains of spirituality back in John's day was going to develop into something called Gnosticism, which was focused on this superior knowledge. You kind of knew the secrets behind the universe. We've got books about that sort of thing today. The rest of the world is duped. Here's the real deal. Here's the real thing that's going on. And there's a higher knowledge. And John says there is no higher knowledge than what God has said to us. The, 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 the highest knowledge we can have is to, to know Him, and we know Him if we are treasuring His commands. Why would we treasure God's commands? I talk about this some with my Bible class. It, some people look at God's commands and they're restrictive. They're kind of like, yeah, that just like kind of crimps my style. Um, but, you know, all of us <clears throat> obey some commands in life very, very easily. Some of you have a diesel truck. And you pull up to Wawa or Sunoco or your gas station of choice 
And, and you're, you don't feel like a free spirit when you go to the pump. You put diesel in your truck. You don't decide, ah, those guys don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to put unleaded in today because it's cheaper. I'm running low on cash. You don't put unleaded in your diesel truck because you want that thing to run. Because it's designed to run on diesel fuel. God's commands are not meant to crimp our style. God's commands are kind of like the owner's manual telling you what fuel to put in your car. God knows how life works because he made it. And, and when we decide that we're going to kind of take matters into our own hands, we, 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 we push against the design. And then we wonder why bad things happen. Vice versa, you throw diesel into your unleaded because you like the sound that a diesel truck makes. Well, you're not going to get the sound a diesel truck makes if you put diesel in your unleaded vehicle. You're going to get a sound, but it's not the cool diesel sound. We could go through the Ten Commandments and we could think about what would life be like if we were all faithful to our spouse? What would life be like if we were all honest with each other? What would life be like if we, uh, if we weren't coveting or desiring more than we have? Some of you would have, you wouldn't have to take so many Maalocks. I mean, life is better with God's commandments. And this is why John says we should treasure them. John's going to get further into how God has changed us, so I don't want to jump ahead. But right now, he's just saying, if you want to know, if you know God, you're going to treasure his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Verse 4, we move forward, and he gives us the, the other side. He tells us, that whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. These bold, stark statements are just really putting us in one of two categories. And John is taking us out of the, um, he, he's taking us out of a rubric uh, or, or a, um, a mindset where we can declare our own faith. Right? What does he say in verse 4? Whoever says. This is not the first time John has said this. Go back up to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. Go to verse 8. If we say we have no sin. Go to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. John really has no time for people who talk about their spirituality or talk about their own goodness. And so he repeats himself in chapter 2 and verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not treasure his commandments, does not defend his commandments. Talk is cheap. We all know that. That's why we're afraid of used car salesmen. I don't know why cars are such a big deal today. Maybe there's something subconscious. I won't go into the story of the week. Tires, oil, used cars. Here we are. Talk is cheap though, right? You don't want to hear the car salesman tell you how good the car is. You want to drive it for yourself. And over the course of the next few months, you don't want to go to the repair shop. Talk is cheap. 
we don't need to say that we know God. We need to live out this personal relationship with God. This knowledge that John is talking about is, is something we mentioned back in Second Peter in, in, uh, in, in the summer. New Testament knowledge of God is not simply a factual accumulation. It is about relationship. Uh, you knew when your parents were pleased with you. You knew when your parents were displeased with you because you could see facial expressions. You know when your child is, is, um, is, is, is on board with what you're saying, even if they don't say a word, and you know if your child is not on board with what you're saying, even if they don't say a word. You know if the person you're talking to, if it's a, a longtime friend, if they're leaning into you or you know if there's some distance because we pick up on these cues. The same thing is what John is saying about our relationship with God. It's not facts. It is where God could even, if he were visible to us, just look and we would know what to do or what not to do. This is how we treasure his commandments. And this is where we uh, get the motivation to do that. We're motivated as well as we, get re- as we get to know Him through reading His Word. We see how He's interacted with other humans. We see His goodness, His faithfulness to them. We have confidence that what He has to say to us is good for us. And so verse 5 brings us back. Whoever keeps His Word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. People talk about this love of God. And Paul, John, excuse me, wants to see it perfected. When Robbie introduced 1 John a few weeks ago, he said that it's very likely that this little letter was written to second or third generation Christians. It's written in the latter half of the first century, excuse me, the last decade of the first century, most likely. And so second or third generation Christians very well may be addressed. I think that this is key because many of us, myself included, grew up in Christian homes. We grew up in Christian homes where mom or dad at, at some point in our growing up years became a believer and life changed in our house and we were in church a lot. Sometimes we liked it, sometimes we didn't. And we've grown up around this. And we as human beings are very good at socially adapting. It's not a bad thing. It's actually very helpful in many ways. But what John wants to make sure these people are doing as a part of this church, perhaps in Ephesus, perhaps in the surrounding area, he wants to make sure that people are not simply socially adapting to being around other Christians. He's wanting to make sure that they have internalized the Christian faith for themselves individually, and that will show up in them having an affinity for what God has to say about honesty. An affinity for what God has to say about going out of your way to help someone in need. Because social adaptation 
will help us get through this life relatively well, but social adaptation to the church without heart transformation will only doom us in the next life. And Paul wants us to know God and live with God and be pleased by Him, be pleased with Him. And so he moves in further. Some have described the way John writes as kind of spiraling. I will admit to you it's, it's difficult at times for me to read through because John seems to jump around. You may have noticed the same thing. Uh, in other cases, it's difficult to preach because you don't really have a, a, a linear line of thought. But he seems to uh, spiral into something. Others have compared it to a loop. He's going along, and then he goes back to talk about something, moves toward, and goes back to talk. And, and so it makes for, I think it makes for good reading. It makes for a little bit more difficult speaking about it. But in verses, uh, end of verse 5 and end of verse 6, he says, by this we may know, he uses that word again, he uses the word know 40 times in this letter. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John wants to see what people say and what people do line up. As we think about this, there is a, a, an old saying about a preacher's aim. The saying was, they should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. The idea being that those people who come into a service and, and, and think they're all good with God... Uh, should be challenged by what the Bible has to say to evaluate, not by their own uh, checklist, but according to God's checklist, are you good with God? And those who come into a service and they feel affliction, they feel the, the press of sin on their lives, they feel the, the, the sense of powerlessness, those are the ones who should be comforted because it's that attitude John says, that actually gives us hope. We, we get hope because we recognize we need help. Uh, we, we recognize, as John says here, that we need someone else. We need to abide in Him. We live in Him. We dwell in Him. We find our uh, a sustaining in Him. We find our strength in Him. Abiding in Him, I must admit to you, is a, a difficult concept. Thankfully for us, Jesus gives us um, a story about that, a, a teaching, an object lesson. It's in John 15. You're welcome to, to turn to that if you'd like. I'm going to read it. John 15. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. <coughs> Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear, it may bear more fruit. 
already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And then he brings in this word, abide. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. If you've been listening so far this morning, can I have that glass of water, please? If you've been listening this morning and you've thought to yourself, yeah, I've tried that whole keeping his commandments thing. If you've been thinking to yourself this morning, yeah, I want to treasure his commands, but it, there's, a, there's just a whole lot in my mind that pushes back against that. Here's where the abiding that John is spiraling into can really meet the needs of our soul. And in fact, must meet the needs of our soul. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You Christians are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You're like, I'm not a branch. That illustration doesn't, like, speak to me. It's a metaphor, yes. It's about finding our source of help in Jesus. Uh, some of you call customer service easily, and some of you work to figure stuff out on your own, and then eventually you call customer service. We all ask for help in a variety of ways. The idea of abiding really is where do you find your help? Where do you find your refuge, as we just sang about? Where do you find the strength to go on? Many of us find that in, in people. God has given us relationships to find strength to go on. And those are good. But in our battle against sin, there's no human being in and of themselves who can get us through. It, it actually takes something supernatural to get us through. And that's Jesus. That's connection to Him. How are we connected to each other? We're, we're connected through communication. So our communication with Jesus is part of our abiding our thought about hope, our thought about pressing on is our abiding. And so John tells us in 1 John that whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. <clears throat> I'm now getting frustrated. If you are, we're all in the same boat. I'm frustrated with this cough. Sorry. We ought to walk the same way he walked. For thousands of years, people knew they were supposed to walk in God's ways, but they had no idea what that really looked like until God himself came and he walked among humans. And what did he do? He treated those who were Samaritans and of mixed race with equal uh, standing as human beings with other people. Those who were 
who were ostensibly religious, superficially religious. He didn't give them uh, extra credit. He didn't kowtow to them. What did Jesus do for those who were oppressed? He helped them out. There are certain things we can't do that Jesus did. We can't heal the blind. We can't heal lepers. We can't raise people from the dead. But the words he spoke and the way he spoke them, we can do. The way he interacted with people, the way he valued them, the way he put his father first and let relationships after that come into place, we can do that. We can walk as he walked when we abide in him, when we treasure his commands. This is the test of how we know we are a believer. He's put it in black and white terms, and he is, he is going to, as we look through this book, he's going to understand that there is a maturing process, there is a growth process. But the question comes down to us, are we struggling against sin, or are we surrendering to it? In my mind, that's the way to, to work this out. Are we struggling against sin, or are we surrendering to it? As we go through life, we, we, we know that John and God are not demanding perfection, but they're wanting us to think about our life's direction and really our location. Are we walking in darkness, very happy to do whatever is sinful, or are we stepping into the light and we're ready to be exposed so we can confess? Here's another way to think about it. Am I leaning toward obedience or am I leaning toward disobedience? Last way to think about it, what frustrates me? What frustrates you? Are you frustrated that you don't obey God more or are you frustrated that you have to obey God in the first place? These sorts of questions can, 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 can be part of the test to open up for us whether or not we are a genuine believer. And we need to ask these questions because verse 4 says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. We, we don't want to be self-deceived. All of this talk about doing right, defending His commands, treasuring Him, bumps up against the reality of our lives. Bumps up, bumps up against the reality that we don't always do what we're supposed to, and John is well aware of that. And so he says, at the end of verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And this is where some of us say, okay, this is where I fall in. If anyone does sin. If you're frustrated by your own sin, here's good news for you. Plan A is that you and I are supposed to defend God's commands. But here's the other part of plan A. Jesus defends us. Because the reality is, is that we don't always pass the test. We don't always pass the test. And so, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We tend to think that celebrities have it all. 
We tend to think that celebrities are in need of nothing. And then they have these moments where they're kind of candid and real and, and we're not always sure is that just to make us seem normal or whatever the case may be. Said during an interview in 1980, John Lennon was quoted this way, the whole Beatles thing was just beyond comprehension. I was subconsciously crying out for help. And so he wrote the song, Help. Some of you know that song. Please don't sing it in your head the rest of the sermon, all right? It comes from a deep place in his own soul. And as you and I read these verses, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You may say, yeah, that'd be a great life, but here's where I live. I sinned. This week, I sinned. They didn't want to, but I did. And here's good news. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. I think it's maybe a good thing. I don't think we have any attorneys here today. For whatever reason, John did not use a word that could be translated attorney or lawyer because maybe if we read Jesus Christ is a lawyer, we might kind of curl up our nose because not all of us have great opinions of lawyers. He is an advocate. He is someone who goes with us to court and he pleads our case. Not the same as an attorney, more personal than an attorney, but more than simply just a friend who wants to be supportive. We have an advocate. The idea of an advocate does not start in the New Testament. Hear these words from Job. Job 16, verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Job knew that he needed someone in front of God to call out for him. And Job had no idea what was really going on behind the scenes with Satan accusing him and tempting him. And yet he called out for this. In the New Testament, we read these words. Who is to condemn? The implied answer is no one. Here's why. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. You and I don't see this, but you and I with eyes of faith need to believe this. That when our sins justly accuse us, even as Christians, Satan still wants to try and pull us out of relationship child relationship, son-daughter relationship with God, and Jesus is, according to Romans 8, indeed interceding for us. Jesus said he would do this in Luke 12. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. And Stephen, the first man who died because of his faith in Jesus Christ, as he was about to pass away, said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The book of Hebrews talks about this uh, more than any other book. I'm just going to read one section from Hebrews. Hebrews 7.25, I'll just read the one verse. It says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always advocating. Why would we always need an advocate? 
Revelation 12 pulls back the veil of what's going on. In the future, the great dragon, Satan, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the world will be thrown down. And in the future, there will be great rejoicing. And they will rejoice because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. We go about our lives and we do good things and we do bad things and people call us out on the bad things and we fight back against them. People miss the fact that we did something bad. But, but in another realm, Revelation 12 tells us, in another realm, Satan latches on to the wrong that you and I do and he tells God, that person is not really worthy of your love and is not worthy of relationship with you. And it says he accuses day and night. This is why Satan has been called the accuser of the brethren. This is why some of you feel that shame and that guilt. You feel those accusations because those accusations are real. And in the courtroom of heaven, there is not only an accuser who daily talks about how bad you are, there is an advocate who says, I paid for that. I paid for that. The cross word, I paid for that. The way you gypped that customer, Christian Jesus paid for that. The things you don't want to do, but you do. Jesus paid for that. He shows his hands. He shows his feet. He shows his side. As the song says, five bleeding wounds he bears. They strongly plead for me because Jesus Christ is not like you and me. Jesus Christ is righteous. And once again, we're reminded the forgiveness that we so desperately need, the forgiveness that we so strongly crave is not free, but came at great cost, and Jesus was glad to pay that cost. He is called righteous advocate and propitiation. The old Greek mythologies had ideas about how God and people could be reunited, And it was that humans could come up with some sort of sacrificial system that would make the gods happy. They called it propitiation. The idea of appeasing the anger of a god. The Bible takes that term and it it repurposes it. It, 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 um, it. It refines it. It perfects it. Where God himself says, I want to be in relationship with people, so I will set up the sacrificial system. And I will not require people to sacrifice themselves. I will not require people to offer enough sacrifices. God says, I will be the sacrifice that satisfies my righteous, fair anger against sin. And as we said last week, this is why we come to praise Jesus. Because all this week, whether you realized it or not, while Satan was accusing you, Christian, Jesus was advocating for you. Accusations and advocate replies. Accusations 
hands are shown. I am justly accused this week. Reading these words as I studied, I'm reminded how justly I'm accused. As much as I want to argue against it, as much as I want to say, I did a lot of good things this week, that's not my plea. My plea are five wounds that Jesus took in my place. This idea of advocate caused one woman to write a song. Her name was Charity Lees Smith. She was born in 1841 in Dublin, Ireland. Her father was a pastor. She was the middle child of seven. She wrote a, a few different hymns, and they were put into to famous uh, hymn books. The Baptist hymn and tune book was one. Charles Spurgeon's church's hymn book was another. Uh, she wrote a song based upon this verse, and she entitled it, The Advocate. The Advocate. The Advocate was uh, sung to a tune that we know uh, as, as Sweet Hour of Prayer. Many times in the uh, 17 and 1800s, they would take a poem, and they'd match it up with the tune, and, and they'd take multiple poems and match them up to the same tune. The Advocate, one of the verses says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him, Jesus there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Charity wrote that hymn when she was 22. She entitled it The Advocate. We sing it and entitle it Before the Throne of God Above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart, and I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, including the tempters, can bid me from there to depart. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, abiding in him, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. And when Jesus defending us captures our minds, our hearts, and our affections, us defending and keeping his commandments becomes not simply more logical. It becomes possible. Christian, Jesus is defending you from constant accusation. He commands you to defend his commandments. Christian, what of those here who may not be Christian? You are defenseless. You are defenseless. The accusations of Satan are accurate and real. 
And there is no advocate for you. Unless. And we urge. And this passage calls us to, as it did in the early verses, to if we confess our sins, there is a way to change the narrative. If we would confess our sins, if we would be honest. We would find God to be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you a second or third? Are your parents or grandparents Christians and you're just part of this group? Confess your sins. Are you here? You've been a part of this church or connected here and, and, and this, is, this is the first time maybe you've heard this. Confess your sins. It results in obedience, but obedience doesn't result in confession. Confession results in obedience. I reiterate, for the comfort of the afflicted, Jesus, Christian, Jesus defends you. You, go out today. Defend His commandments. Let's bow and think about our souls in quietness for a moment. We take this time of silent prayer, 30, 60 seconds, because all of us respond to the Bible in some way. And as the Holy Spirit has been communicating to your heart, I pray that you would listen to the nudge and the push and the pull of the Spirit. And don't quench it. And find freedom from guilt and shame. Find a sure and steady anchor. Find security and refuge. I'll start our time of silent prayer and the piano will end it. Father, thank you for Jesus, our advocate. May we all run to him. May we all look up to him and see him with eyes of faith. May we rely upon him. God, I pray that your spirit would win its battle in the hearts of friends here today.